You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to just any old episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. <laughs> and tonight we are looking at the classic, classic uh, work of Nigel Neal and, in fact, his serial entitled Just Quatermass. This is uh, in four parts. Um, not the podcast, just the synopsis is in four parts. So, uh, because it's four episodes. Chapter 1, Ringstone Round. Aged Bernard Quatermass has been invited to London to appear on a BTV program about the hands of friendship space hookup between the USA and the USSR. He's not been in London in a long time and didn't expect dead bodies on the streets and vicious youth gangs who collect old men's teeth. He is waylaid by one such gang. He's rescued by Joe Cap and Puppy. Joe Cap is a radio astronomer of Quatermass's acquaintance by reputation at least, and Puppy is a dog. Quatermass is appalled by the spectacle of the space hookup, and he's really just there to find his missing granddaughter, who has run away. After he chastises the farcical show in space, he tries to use the worldwide audience to find his granddaughter. It's all he really cares about. His admonition that the space venture is doomed to failure proves a little too prophetic, though, and within moments, the spacecrafts fail on camera, killing everyone. Worried that Quatermass has fallen under suspicion, Joe takes him back to his home in the country, where he and a small team of young scientists run a small, lashed-together radio telescope. Quatermass is introduced to Joe's wife, Claire, an archaeologist-turned-homemaker, and his two small daughters. Quatermass is puzzled by... And Joe is outraged by the planet people, gangs of youths who reject knowledge, science, and learning, and claim to feel the call of the planet, which is going to take them away to a world that hasn't been ruined by the old folks. They are drawn by so-called mystical forces towards a nearby Neolithic stone circle, Ringstone Round. At Claire's suggestion, Joe takes Quatermass to see the Megalus, and they are there when hundreds of planet people storm the circle, and a great beam of light comes down from the sky, breaking up the stones and leaving nothing but ash in the place of the planet people. Chapter 2. Lovely Lightning. Kickalong, leader of the planet people who were storming Ringstone Round, and a few of his followers were involved in an altercation with the police and were away from the stone circle when the lovely lightning came from the sky, and therefore... They survived, but they are convinced the others were taken to the planet. One young woman, Isabel, was close enough to have been affected by the lightning, but survived, badly injured, blind, and almost completely deaf. Quatermass, Joe, and Claire must wrest her away from the planet people, who are increasingly hostile towards scientists. At Joe's home, Claire, badly shaken by what she'd seen, desperately cares for the girl, but she's also showing signs of cracking up. Even Joe's children seem increasingly entranced with a nursery rhyme about Ringstone Round. Annie, district commissioner, arrives looking for Quatermass. They need him. Using Joe's telescopes, they are able to get a signal to the Americans. Ringstone Round isn't the first such event. The first happened in Brazil at exactly the same time the American-Soviet spacecraft failed. 
communications are spotty, but Quatermass, with Anne's help, heads towards London with Isabel so that she can be studied. On the way, Quatermass begins to formulate up hypothesis. The stones were put there to remember some horrible event that happened 5,000 years ago. What if something was here 5,000 years ago, and now it is returning? Huge gatherings of people are a relatively recent occurrence. Society and young people in particular have been increasingly rejecting science and adopting magical thinking. What if they are somehow sensing the long approach of something that is here now that is drawing them to these circles? Joe, thinking they need more telescope power, heads towards a remote satellite receiver to see if he can repair it to add to their array. While he's gone, the planet people start to descend on a small stone circle near Joe's house. Claire, the children, and even one of the scientists fall under the spell of the crowd, while the other scientists fight to save them from the crowd. At the satellite facility, Joe sees a bolt of lightning coming from the direction of his home, and he rushes to return. In London, Annie and Quatermass run afoul of a gang war gun battle between two rival youth gangs. Annie and Isabel manage to drive off, but Quatermass falls from the car. Back at Joe's house, the stone circle, like ringstone round, is shattered, the ground covered in ash. The charred body of Puppy is there, too. His nearby house has been destroyed. There is no sign of Claire, the children, or the remaining scientists. There is no doubt of their fate. Chapter 3. What Lies Beneath Quatermass finds himself hiding in an automobile graveyard where he encounters a group of old people who have made their home underneath it. They take him in and treat his injuries. Even here he has a bit of name recognition and he tells them what has been happening and how the planet people think they're being taken to another planet. The whole idea is nonsense, of course, but now the oldies are starting to think it sounds like a good idea. I mean, the kids broke this world. We deserve a better place, too. Meanwhile, Annie has gotten Isabel to a hospital and is desperately trying to get people in power to listen to her, with some limited success. She and the hospital staff watch in horror as Annie levitates off the hospital bed and explodes in a cloud of ash. So much for their lab rat. The military raid the underground Hubble and find Quatermass, rescuing him, more or less, and take him to BTV, where they interrupt the only television program worth watching, Tidipi Bumpity and use the facilities to communicate with the Americans. He postulates that there is a gigantic bubble surrounding the Earth, and that the beams fire from that. The Americans and the Russians have decided to send a space shuttle out to communicate with the aliens, but Quatermass warns against it, saying, This is a harvest, not an attempt to establish a dialogue. They disregard his advice. Next, Quatermass meets with a PM in the cabinet. He explains his theory that this is probably a machine harvester. Most of the cabinet are old, but the younger deputy prime minister is just young enough that he can sense that the planet people are probably right. Luckily, older and clearer heads are in charge. Already thousands are converging on Wembley Stadium, and this time it's not just planet people. The gangs are dropping their weapons and joining the crowds, as are the soldiers. Tens of thousands are converging there. The U.S. spacecraft is destroyed without making any contact. At the same time, the Prime Minister drops dead of a heart attack, leaving his deputy in charge. Quatermass tries to convince him to do something about Wembley Stadium, and at least they all go out there together. But when they get there, the new PM orders Quatermass and Annie shot. They escape into the car park, but Annie is killed in a car crash, just as the lightning strikes Wembley. Chapter 4. Endangered Species 70,000 or more people were in Wembley Stadium. Now, only Quatermass survives. 
Even Annie's body was burned away. As the sun comes up, the sky is now green from all the particles of dead people in the air. Back at the much-diminished cabinet, Quatermass meets with Gorov, the Russian scientist that wanted to communicate with the aliens. He now believes, as Quatermass does, that it is a harvesting machine devoid of intelligence, and he has come to England to work with Quatermass. However, others in the Soviet Union plan to launch all their nukes at it. Quatermass and Gorov know the plan is doomed to fail, as there is no target. Quatermass and Gurov form a plan with a crack team of aging scientists and extras from the last of the summer wine. They set about analyzing everything they know about the situation in an effort to build a trap. They believe that it is something unique to the young and their energy. It could be the chanting, the hormones, pheromones, the aggression, something. They aim to create a digital synthesis to lure the beam to a place of their choosing. That place is Joe's radio telescope. When they go there, they discover Joe crazed with grief, futilely trying to repair his equipment. They leave him, but promise to return. Soon, Kickalong, the one-planet person who just can't seem to catch a ride on a beam of light, shows up with his group, which includes Quatermass's granddaughter. Knowledge and science are bad, so they destroy what's left of Joe's equipment. So despondent is Joe that he even tries to join them, but he cannot bring himself to abandon who he is, a learned Jew. The Soviet plan to destroy it came to nothing, and now the Soviet Union has collapsed. The trap is ready to be set up and sprung, and Quatermass and team return. This time, Joe is back to being himself, more or less. Quatermass's plan will simulate a gathering of a million people. When the beam descends, a nuclear device will be detonated. They can't hope to destroy it, but they hope that, like a man stepping on a wasp, a warning signal will be sent and the machine will leave. The simplest, most foolproof way to detonate the bomb is a big, bright, shiny red button wired straight to the nuke. Quatermass and Joe will remain to push that button. At first, it looks as if it won't work, but then Kickalong and the gang arrive. They see sciencey stuff and aim to destroy it. Kickalong goes straight for the nuke. Joe tries to warn him off, but Kickalong guns him down. At that moment, three things happen. The light starts to descend. Quatermass and his granddaughter see each other, and Quatermass suffers a heart attack. As he struggles against death to reach the button, wordlessly, his granddaughter joins him and lifts his hand onto the button and pushes it. Epilogue. The world is nice again, and Gorov tells us, The message was taken. It has not come again. We pray it will not come again. The end of the series. The end of Quatermass. The end. So, Quatermass. Quatermass. I'm sure we'll have a bunch to say about the construction, the making, and whatnot, but uh, offhand, what did you think of Quatermass? Well, I'm just gobsmacked for the minute that you get Last of the Summer Wine on your side of the pond. No. No, no. No, no. But oh, but I know it by you. cultural reference. <laughs> thank goodness for I'm that. sure so some of those people must have terrible been. On you there. <laughs> Actually, I suspect that we have it on BritBox now. Over here, I, I haven't looked, but uh, but generally speaking, no. Last of the summer wine is not uh, not a thing that we do. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I just threw that in there as a, a reference for for people on that side of the pond. Oh, that's so what did you think of Quatermass? Yeah, I always try to be accommodating. <laughs> what did you think of Quatermass? The fourth, well, the I, final. I, I, it. Uh... I, I, where to start in terms of the context for it? Because obviously it is the fourth of four, but it's a very different beast from the three 1950s 
BBC Quatermass serials, it's set very much in a 1970s context, and yet watching it here in 2020, you can't help but being struck by how much of it resonates. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not unusual because we've said that before about Nigel Neal's prescience in in what he writes, and he can't have known how. Uh, how I mean, he was he was setting this in the last. I think it's as specific as the last quarter 20th of the 21st century. century. Sorry, 20th century. Yeah. 20th century, um, yeah. And here, here we are approaching the end of the first quarter of the 21st. Um, but the extent to which the kind of the anti-science and the, the freedom to believe what you want to believe, however however destructive and... You or know, ridiculous. The, uh, indeed. The, the, um, the scene where where the planet people are annihilated at Ringstone Round in front of, mm-hmm. you know, in front of the eyes of the survivors and and yet still refuse to accept what has happened because they believe an explanation is that they have been transported to the planet. It's like, it's like uh, a, a gag in Avenue 5 that does almost exactly the same thing. But Avenue 5 was made in the last year or so, as specifically as a kind of a, a, a satire on the, the world of Trump and, I guess, to a lesser extent, Brexit. And yet, and yet here it is in 1979. It is quite extraordinary. I, I mean, I think the, the universality of, of the human experience about how stupid people can be uh, or how gullible <laughs> or, or whatever word we want to use here or lead lead maybe is a, a better word um has has always been true i mean we, we're looking at 97 look at this well it's like look at look at nazi germany i mean it, it can be done people there are weaknesses in the psyche of man that can be done i think nigel neal is just we I, i'm not trying to denigrate from what he's done here but you know we look at that and go wow he's just talking about today but you know, a lot of people were probably watching this saying, wow, he's just talking about today. <laughs> you know, I guess, uh, I guess, up but to I, point, I, you know, that all of these things are, are there. He's just really good at tapping into these sort of negative uh, things that, you know, you bring them up and you highlight them and go, look, look, this is this bad thing. And you go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a bad thing. He's, he's brilliant at that. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, the way in which he's highlighted the generational divide in this, which again seems to be something that is particularly uh, an issue at the moment. I mean, we can come back to which side of that divide he has decided to plant his flag, um, which I guess may <laughs> do with his age at the time. But, the, you know, again, I, I guess the answer to that is you sit when when you... When you have someone who's written, who is writing about such universal themes, you receive that and immediately connect it with the world and the context in which you're living. And obviously he was writing about the 1960s counterculture and all that kind of thing. So he, he couldn't, I guess, he couldn't have known the filter through which we would see it. But as you say, the universality of it makes it very easy to connect with that. Yeah, there, there, there is a way, though. I think that um, viewing it in twenty twenty must it must feel different from what it was like forty years ago in the 
it seems to me anyway, in the sense that the extremity of the world that Neil was portraying then must have seemed further removed from the whereas now some of it I mean it's interesting because the whole thing is very, very heightened and yet it is played extremely seriously. And to some extent that's what the Quatermass serials always did. But for 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 various reasons, including the the kind of changes in the in the changes in quality and uh, expense of the production, seem to make it more uh, ap- apparent bec- because the you know the the re- the re- the realism has replaced the theatricality of the earlier ones, and yet some of the absurdities in this, when it's being played absolutely straight, it can go one of two ways. It can either be quite chilling and like I say connect with things now that don't seem as extreme or it can just seem laughable uh, perhaps unintentionally so uh, j- j- just as a point of reference uh give me an example of something that you found laughable well I mean uh, w- so one thing was the the kind of uh, bed sitting room aspect of the the kind of the post-apocalyptic landscape and all of the all of the oldies living in the junkyard, which I kind of love because the, the you know the atmosphere and the way it was done, uh, it was it was terrific. And but I mean, it, it veers between whether Chisholm is a is a is a joke character or a genius. Um, and also, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the, the titty bumpety stuff. I guess it was supposed to be funny, but I, I also think that Neil was. The, based on the kind of themes that have preoccupied him previously, it's something that he was trying to have a dig at. But as satire, it's just, it, it, it's blunt. There's no depth there to it's it. It's definitely and a leftover from Sex Olympics. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but you know, in Sex Olympics, he explores it in a much more interesting and nuanced kind of a, a way. I mean, some of it is obviously very in your face, but as a take taken as a as a piece in that context it it's much more meaningful whereas here it just kind of looks like it looks it's like, like a, a dig at the bbc it's a joke that that's being played at the level of heightenment that you would give in front of a studio audience but there is no studio audience there so it it kind of sounds like no one's laughing all right let, let, let's take a step back then for a second and say that one um, you know, the first three Quater Masses were produced in the 1950s on the BBC, um, which we've covered two out of the three. Uh, one doesn't exist in its original form, and we are going to cover that somehow one of these days, just to com- be completists. Um, but Neil fell out, and we've described this elsewhere in in our podcast, Neil kind of fell out with the BBC, uh, mostly over royalties, I think on his Quatermass stuff and he stopped, you know, he stopped working for them. But before he did, he did in fact do a treatment or an outline of some kind for a fourth Quatermass. Uh, would have been about 1972-ish and that never got made and it found its way over to the ITV where they got some people interested in doing it, including Verity Lambert. Um, you know, and so this is, you know, mounted by a different network. It's mounted in a completely different way. It was done on film, uh, all of it, 
And uh, if if you get a chance to see the Blu-ray, it's beautiful. It was made twice at the same time <laughs> because Neil uh, also did a version. And, and you know, it's it's cut up, but he apparently did a script for the shorter version that was supposed to be a theatrical release. And then that didn't happen much. And he also novelized it at the same time. So they are three slightly different versions. We're, we're looking at the the go-for-the-wall four hours of Quatermass version. And it, and it is, I mean, it is quite an interesting evolution in the, in the sense that, um, I, I mean, I believe originally it was intended that Quatermass would reappear in out, out of the unknown. So the BBC were playing around with this quite an early stage. And as you say, they 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 then options the the Quatermass 4 whatever it would have been called had it been on the BBC mm-hmm. and dropped it for reasons of cost and their their version of Quatermass 4 would have been primarily studio bound right. and yet the version that we see as you say is shot on film extensive location stuff mm-hmm. um I mean, it it looks really good. It they would built have that cost... radio telescope. I, exactly, exactly. It would have cost way more than uh, the BBC would have were not even willing to pay for it at, at, at BBC prices. So, um, I, I mean, obviously, it would be interesting to know what the the BBC version would have looked like. Um, but this is, I mean, it is a very it is a very different beast from the 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 1950s uh you know three hour rudolph rudolph cartier uh, mm-hmm. serials and which of course were all done as live i mean that's the other thing about it this yeah. this would have all all have been done presumably shot with a with a one camera setup um as opposed to those those uh i mean obviously some of some of um two and the pit were shot on film but but most of it was done as live in the studio and it gives it a kind right. of energy and immediacy whereas this as i say it's it it there's a there's less of the theatricality because it has a more it has a more naturalistic flavor to it because it looks like a film and as you say most of the most of what we see on tv is footage that was used in the theatrical release they did clever stuff so that they could they could basically Rather than shooting everything twice, shoot almost all of it just once, and then cut together a film out of it, and cut together a a four hour four part TV show. Now I have not watched the film version. Uh, I I will, maybe not today, but uh, you know, but I will because I'm curious as to how it works. So you know, I think it's not unknown that this is considered the lesser of the lights in the Quatermass series it wasn't as much of a critical success um neil himself wasn't crazy about aspects of it i think i think we can now safely say that that's a true statement about anything that nigel neil has ever done he wasn't he wasn't crazy about aspects of it although from the interview stuff that i saw you know he puts a lot of blame on the script not i mean he puts a lot of blame elsewhere too but but you know on the script he 
he says it's not up to to what he wanted and uh the book is expanded and has more stuff in it uh i will say that i came to this from the book back in about 1983 when i got a copy of the of the book so that is my first experience with it and and i and also quatermass well, see, that's a lie. So I also got the books for Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2, but they're script books. They were published at the same sure. time. And, uh, you know, that's a different experience. And I, I'm sure I read them first. And I would have seen Quatermass Experiment, the Hammer film, and uh, whatever they called Quatermass 2 um, when, it was, when it was released as a Hammer film. Although I would not have you know, associated Quatermass. In other words, that was just a, those were just 50 science fiction films with a disposable hero kind of scientist guy. And so not being keyed in on the Quatermass thing. So when I got the books, um, you know, I, I don't think you get as much out of reading a script. You can get it, but you don't get as much out of reading a script. And when I read the Quatermass the the other book the, this book i kind of thought it was a little draggy and and uh and you know it had ew, it had sex between old people in it um <laughs> apparently quatermass and annie i that i remember that i remember uh old folks fumbling in the dark in desperate times when the world is being destroyed and you know when i read that when i was 18 or 19 that's just a thing you never want to think about. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, no. And um, so I, I, I think as, that says a lot about the generational divide, which is right on point there. Yes, it is. And, and I, and I think that <laughs> I've heard this from more than a, more than a, a few people, some of whom, whose opinions I, I value very much who know far, far more about Nigel Neal and his works than, than, than you or I ever will, uh, that, that their opinions on this have changed with time. And I can def, and that maybe because we're all getting older. I don't yeah, know. I'm, yeah. I mean, I, generation, I mean, that's a huge thing in this. It's a huge thing in this. Um, I mean, the other aspect of it, of course, what I was talking about, which is our bits of it becoming more relevant because Neil was again ahead of his time. Um, but certain, certainly the way in which the way in which young people are, in which they're, I, d I don't quite know if it's fair to say it's it's young people in general or if it's the planet people specifically, but actually it's all of the young people, people in, in general, this yeah. are the planet people, essentially. Eventually, so, yeah. But even before that, they're the gangs and the. But I, I want to, I want to put this out there because this is the one one thing that really bugs me about this. If it's if it is an indictment of the young versus the old, and I don't exactly think that it is. I think it's kind of interesting that that Neil has made an excuse for the young people. This is not yes. the way young people yes. would behave. This has been the influence of this thing coming at us for 50 or 100 years that has just been increasingly affecting the newly formed, the the people of less defenses. And so we have to give them a pass. You're, except, you're, you're except saying how awful these people are. You're saying how terrible young people can be. And at the same time, you're saying, but it's really not their fault. So 
But ah. because, because, because of the influence of, and then insert permissiveness or, you know, whatever particular bogeyman he's going for. In but this. you could make all of those influences to be just symptomatic of the alien species coming in. All of that is just heightening yeah. all that up. So, I mean, it, in a way, it's, it, it is saying something about society and at the same time it's dismissing it because it's saying, but that's not really, it's really not, it is not a function of them being young. It is a function of them being influenced by space aliens. And but, but that I, yeah, I find I mean, a little unsuccessful. Be... Well, oh, I definitely think this is the aspect of it that comes off worse now. I think that in in defense of Neil, I would say it would be very difficult for him to make a case that young people are inherently bad because all the old people had been young people. So it's a, it's a question of saying, well, why is it that... Um, that the youth are a problem now. And one thing that we can't possibly accept is that the youth are a problem now because we are looking at them from a, the perspective of being old. And when we were young, that is how, how the older generation looked at us. But they were wrong. And now, now the older generation is us. The older generation can't be wrong. So it must be something wrong with the young people so let's look around for affluence that's caused that yeah and and of course the young people are wrong <laughs> in this well in this they, story. they, yeah. they are but 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 that as you say i think it's the aspect of it that comes off particularly badly and and that is something where looking at it from the perspective of 2020 you you can't help and i i'm not going to talk about uh trump because i don't know as much about the demographic breakdown on your side of the pond but in terms of um, looking at Neil as some kind of prophet here well sorry he got this one wrong it wasn't the young people being anti-science and saying knowing stuff is wrong it was the old people who voted for Brexit and who are opposed to I mean Opposed to progress, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want. I don't want to dismiss everyone who was in, who was, who is in favour of Brexit in the same breath. I, I just think you have to acknowledge that there was a campaign around it that was fueled by an emotional instinct rather than actually being based on the rational arguments. And while a tiny minority of, of the people may have been vote, voting on the rational arguments, we had leaders of the prominent campaigns. We had people who are in the current cabinet saying things like, we have had enough of experts. And so when you have a line in Quatermass where a character says, literally, stop knowing things. And I yep. wonder, you know, in 1917, does that look like a really kind of... Um, lazy piece of writing because surely no one would be as crass as to phrase that sentiment in that way and yet here we are in 2016 and government ministers are being equally crass in the way that they essentially dismiss all enlightenment values in favor of a kind of totally totally emotional it's what plays it, it, with my electorate yeah yeah, it, and but it, but it, but it's 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 a wrecking campaign. It's a wrecking campaign that they were running. They were they were they are tearing something down, 
and they are doing so from a from a position not of not of intellectual inquiry not of intelligently looking at the evidence or examining ways in which the changes that they are proposing might impact on things they are doing it from a position of saying if you give us evidence that opposes what we are emotionally attached to we will reject it and then Mm. the immediate extrapolation from that is is literally stop knowing things because what's the point if the things that you quote know tie in with what you want to believe with what your emotional instinct tells you well that's all well and good but it's not really adding anything and if they oppose those instincts well then they have to be rejected anyway so really there is no point stop knowing things and while I'll, and while I'll, while we're, I, I absolutely agree. You're, you, you're dead on, you're dead on there. Um, I, I think we might as well throw one out here because Neil takes a glancing blow at it in this one. And that is when, in that same scene, <laughs> kick along holds up the, uh, I guess that's a menorah, uh, and says, you Jewish and, Yeah, he says, well, that's a start. I mean, religion is also a start at not knowing things, right? I mean, it, it, we, that theme has run run through this. I mean, it's in the context of, of Judaism in this particular story, but, you know, you see, you see his wife get increasingly vested in the trapments of, of the ritual earlier as she's becoming more and more under the sway of the, of the, events that are happening and you know it's a it's a comfort in trying times that's another aspect of it and it it feels like he's trying to just take a little poke at it but he doesn't want to stick it in too hard but i wonder if that's i i I don't know i mean i wonder if you could read it in two ways because it is I prefer to read it in the anti-religion way, but that's just me. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> I, that's why I'm wondering if it, if it is a projection, and I and I and I can see why because you're because essentially you're saying that the the the, the way in which uh, Claire becomes more Jewish ties in with the way in which she feels the influence of, of you know because she is she is young and she and she is being sympathetic to the planet people. Similarly, when Joe has this, you know, this massive emotional trauma. That is when he is particularly, he is particularly linked into the rituals that he's seen Claire performing, and it's like it's a connection with her, but also it's it's a, it's connects with the. He suddenly regresses into this position where he's convinced that they are not dead, or he is convinced he has deluded himself that that they are not dead, even if on some level he knows that's not true. But I do think there is an alternative way of viewing it, which is, as you alluded to in your synopsis, Joe is a is a a, a learned Jew, and I wonder why he picked Judaism as a as the religion to use in this, because um, it's not necessarily a, a a religion that you would automatically associate with the rejection of the values of science and scientific progress i think i think joe joe in his rational moments is still speaking fondly about the jewish rituals that he remembers his father adopting and and um he uh, in some way it it seems to me that it could be there because neil is trying to present 
an alternative to the kind of mindless belief that he is trying to rescue religion from going the same way as the as the kind of planet people the the repetitive mantra chanting kind of mindlessness that now, now, that some religions are based on yeah i didn't i didn't choose the word learned jew joe did and joe is of course nigel neal so i i i used that because that's what he called himself. And I mean, yes. there is a tradition. There is, there is a, a much stronger tradition of the, the traditional Jewish observations as opposed to the people who truly believe the, the, the mythology as, as fact. And, and there is a, a long tradition of, of, education and science and i think that's why he picked it because he needed to pick somebody who he needed to pick uh, somebody that that you could shorthand that and say here is joe who throughout this entire thing is the most absolutely antagonistic to magical thinking in this entire thing i mean look at how angry he gets when they drive through that little town at the little gathering at the beginning and they're selling you know, talismans and magic potions and some magical thinking. It's always magical thinking. And when they encounter the, the planet people, he's, he's angry at, at this notion. And he gives his speech about, you know, we're, we're learned Jews and that's what I stand for. And yet, right. You get back and then his house and it's, and they've got the, the menorah up and, and other thing. And my thought at the time was Neil's trying to t say something here about this about this says you jewish that's a start you have to believe not think and like okay he's he's got to be he's got to be taking a little kick but yeah um, no I, I i agree i agree that line is a pop it's just it's that it's that his jewishness is woven into the whole thing and one of the things about the caps is obviously as you say joe is joe is very much uh he rejects all of the kind of magical thinking and all of the kind of nonsense around that and yet there is that he he is not he is not just a brain he is a man you know the the the, he, the life he has built his, his family life and i i think it it's fascinating the way it's staged with his little his little home which they keep on talking about the the modesty of and yet it, it is obviously a kind of very lovely space right next to his his observatory and the 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 kind of the Jewish observance in that in, in the, the rituals that we see are all tied in with with that family life side of things and even yeah. you know when when he talks about when he talks about his work and he talks about why he gets excited about the observatory he talks about the the the, the telescope as he says it's only a tin trumpet but my God the music mm -hmm. which I thought was a beautiful line i mean it's just it's it's lovely but it's also there is some something there that suggests a spiritual dimension to what he is doing what the, the his drive for discovery if that makes sense mm. mm -hmm. yeah it's it's an interesting character what did you think of the performance by mr mccorkendale in, I, in this role i so I, I, I broadly speaking liked it. I I I was a bit skeptical. I guess I came in with low expectations because I was not <laughs> keen on Baby, which is really the kind of 
most recent performance of his that I I, I, I remember, and so that was in my mind. Uh-huh. Um, and he's obviously got quite a journey in this one. Oh, um, yeah, he is definitely get all the way to death. Yeah, <laughs> like everybody and, else in this damn show. Well, but, yeah, uh, well, yeah. But he, what I, th- what I think he does, what I think he does quite well in this is he, is he does encapsulate all of those aspects that I, that I met. So he, he manages to be, uh, he manages to be likable, learned. He's the the first time we see him, he rides to to Quatermass's rescue, but then we see him on the on the studio floor in that uh, discussion, and. In that again, he's quite uh, he's 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 defensive and he's and he's helpful to Quatermass, and so I guess I found him much more sympathetic in that kind of a role where there was a there was an there was an aspect of his character where you could you could latch on to some something more sympathetic than the character he was playing in Baby, where ah. I kind of felt he didn't that there was no depth to that there was nothing you know he was just purely unpleasant <laughs> so i think the, the harshest criticism that i read from neil about the actress was mccorkendale um he thought that he was a terrible choice and his his quote and i'm getting it slightly wrong here um because i can't remember what he called him well i can't remember the exact word he called him but he said basically we had him in baby and he was playing someone stupid or he was playing an idiot and he should stick to roles like that something like that <laughs> I mean, he he really didn't think he was well cast. I just thought he was badly cast in Baby. I mean, I think I think this this may not this may not be this may be either damning McCorkendale with faint praise or kind of an insult disguised as a compliment. But this is a better part for him because oh sure, in Baby, he's not the villain. He, he well. No, well, I don't know. I mean, often actors like playing the villain, but part of that is because it 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 gives you something more to get get your teeth into. Because the villain has to be interesting, and the villain has to be a character where a lot of the people who play villains talk about how they they get inside the mind of the villain by thinking they're never they never they always think they are the hero in their own story. Yeah. That's the hero of their the own story. Yeah. He didn't appear to be able to get inside the mind of that character in Baby. He didn't, you know, he they, he didn't manage to invest that character in in any depth or really account for the motivation of the way that he was behaving. He was just a a caricature of a of a of an impatient and unpleasant man. Mm. Whereas this this, I mean, he does have a bit of a journey to go on, but fundamentally, I I think. He's he's got to be uh, he's got to be a kind of bit posh, likable, knowledgeable character who gets himself into unfortunate circumstances. By which time, his performance doesn't matter so much. So, like I say, I'm not I'm not necessarily nominating him for an Oscar, but I'm not sure that I totally agree with Neil. Okay, let's let, let me throw up a couple other points here. We'll we'll turn our attention to to John Mills as uh as Quatermass. Um I'll start with again, and I'm taking this from Neil's biography. So, um he also thought Mills was not necessarily the best actor to to cast in that part. He thought he was not um 
forceful enough, I, I guess. The per- force well, of personality wasn't there. He was kind of wandering around. But but I want to g- get on to that because I'm going to disagree with that because what I what I see is an extremely good job with turning yes it's a bit on the nose in the dialogue here and there but they turn a frail feeble old man who is basically done with his life into you know you, you see him come back from the brink basically he he's at the end when he's starting this story and by the time he's done he's in charge he's forceful he's getting things done he's sharp um, yes, he's, he ultimately is making the sacrifice there at the end. Um, and I think, you know, it does credit that, that Mills does that well. I, I didn't like the line when the little girl says, when did he stop being old? Because it is a little on the nose. Uh, you know, in case you missed it, (laughs) in case you missed it, suddenly he's not, uh, you know what the, the best, the best in case you missed it point that they didn't call out? Everywhere in episode one and and two, for that matter, absolutely everywhere, he pulls out his pictures. It doesn't matter. You know, I, I'm surprised he didn't try to stop at a batter gang and pull out the picture. Have you seen my granddaughter? That's all I care about. I've lost her. She's my grand. I mean, everywhere, right? Jumps out in a group of planet people and Joe's like, no, don't do that. Uh, all over the place. He's constantly, constantly doing that. But when he is down in that graveyard, auto graveyard with the old folks and they find his pictures like oh look at the pictures they're all the same person not a word not a word you know that's my granddaughter have you seen her you can keep some show them around but he doesn't try it he's done with that he's moved beyond that that's not what's driving him in his life anymore you know now it's the problem now it's the and and that's a better moment than the little girl explaining it to us that he suddenly getting younger in his outlook anyway if not at least that's how i saw it um but what did you think of his performance and, well i, and I, I think you may have answered something that i wanted to ask you when you were talking about the fact that so you, how you come across quatermass um i mean i i i'm i'm much newer to quatermass than you i think i think my first quatermass was the quatermass experiment of 2005 and oh, right, right. only much more recently have I gone back to to the um, the, the kind of nineteen fifties serials, and then coming to this, I had not seen the film, or read the book, or anything like this. This is the first time I have experienced this story. Obviously, I knew that it was twenty years later than the than the other serials, and I guess the thing that when I started watching it was in my mind and I wanted to ask you was is this still Quatermass in the sense that is this has Nigel Neal just written a story and then stuck Quatermass as a character in it because people wanted Quatermass back or is this genuinely the fourth in you know the the Quatermass series if you like does it does it have a common despite all of the kind of production differences and all the rest of it does it have a common dna with the cartier series of the 50s I, I, um, well I, yeah I, mean, I think i would say yes it it by the end of it yes it is there is one other area though that touches on that same thing that bothered me about this story and that was 
you know, there are there are actually references in this story to previous things that happened. In fact, there's a reference to Quatermass experiment. Yeah. Uh, when the the BTV television producer says, "Oh, back in the, the old days," and they the whole crew and uh, and you know that's clearly the reference to the entire crew, but but is ignoring the fact that the British government was taken over by aliens and ignoring the events of Quatermass <laughs> and the pit, right and when the American says, well, the reason we wanted to talk to you is because uh, we wanted to know if you'd seen anything like this, Bernard. Uh, no, not like, well, I mean, yes, no, but no, I haven't seen anything like this. Well, yeah, you kind of have in Quatermass in the Pit. <laughs> this sort of, you know, I wouldn't exactly say it's the same as the race memory, but in a way, people being influenced and, and it, it just yeah, feels like there should have been more more Quatermass drawing on, on if not, you know, if, it was more or less of a name check there, you know, it, that here's the Quatermass name check. Here's the name check of, the, of a thing that happened in the past. He's had experiences. And I don't know. I, I, I could see how something that monumental <laughs> would, would have played up. You know, maybe it's a race memory. I, we've actually seen that before. <laughs> right. Um, so I, that, that part felt to me like they were kind of intentionally ignoring, ignoring yeah. it, but then maybe they can't because maybe he owns Quatermass, but you know, he lost out on all the rights for Quatermass and the pit and things. I don't know. Oh, I, I doubt that, that. that. I doubt that. That did make no, it I... feel a little bit like uh, that almost made it feel a little like a different writer was working on this. And of course it is a different writer. It's a man 20 years older, but still. Or thirty years older, but well, except that it wasn't when he started working on this because it it taken almost a decade to um, to actually reach the screen. So there is there is there is, I guess, some kind of continuity rooted in this. But I think that one of the challenges of seeing them as being a a genuine continuity is the fact that we have had four Quatermass serials and we have had four. Quatermasses, which is why it's quite interesting to think about this when we're talking about John Mill's performance, because even in the 50s, when, you know, the serials were a couple of years apart, we had Reginald Tate, and then we had John Robinson, and then we had uh, Andre uh, Morrill. Morrill? I didn't get his name right. Andre Morrell. Yeah, Andre Morrell. I was, or Moran. Is it? Morrell. It is Morrell. Yeah. Morrell. I get him mixed up with the, with with um, Hancock's girlfriend in, in the Hancock's half hour radio series. But yeah, Andre Morel. And now we and now we have um and now we have John Mills. But it but some of the kind of trappings around all the you know, all the British rocket group stuff in Quatermass in the in the fifties are gone because as you say, he has he has become an old man and because his preoccupations have shifted completely, he's he's someone who has he's retired to the middle of nowhere in rural Scotland and he's only come back to look for his daughter not because he has any Ooh. particularly uh, sorry granddaughter he has any particular it's Joe's journey too Quatermass has lost all his family that's what he's doing at the beginning of this episode he's desperately trying to find back his family when Joe loses his family in his insane state that's what he's doing true he's yeah. lost it and and when he has purpose again to to blow himself up um, <laughs> he he pulls it back from the brink. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like themes, the, man. Themes. <laughs> one of the things that seems to me very different about Quatermass is that it is much more explicitly set in further into the future from the point of view of the time at which it was shown. And mm-hmm. whilst I take your point about the government being taken over and the, the kind of events of Quatermass and the pit, they are incidences that occur on a, on a, on a more... Condi- the government is secretly being taken over, right? They're not, it's not everyone knows they're being taken over. It's they're secretly being taken over. And, and the, the events in the pit are confined to the area around the pit, at least initially. London, and so, yeah. And so what's very different about this is that we start off in a world that is not entirely recognisable with, you know, with, with the gangs and the, the, the whole setup of British television and the planet people, and Quatermass has been out of it. Quatermass is our proxy in that. Um, however credible this may seem, he, he, is the, he has somehow managed to be completely unaware of these changes that have been wrought. And but he knew about Wembley and the death games. I, I heard about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. That's a point. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he knew it, but I think he just didn't understand. You know, you can read about it, but if you don't stand in the middle of it, you, yes. you yes. don't. It's the distance that you get from being at a little lock in Scotland. Yes, um, yes. Those, those kind of differences in terms of the kind of 70s dystopia that this is initially set in made it feel to me like something different. And it was because of the things that you mentioned about the way in which Quatermass during this serial becomes Quatermass again. That was what kind of brought me back on board. And I agree with you. I think John Mills has a huge amount to do with that. And I think I like his performance probably as about as much as anyone except Andre Morel, who I think is, is far and away the best. I'm going to hold judgment on Reginald Tate. Fair enough. Uh, we don't. We only have half his work to go on, anyway. Or is it a third of his work to go on? A third, I fear. Yeah. <clears throat> about that. So you know, one of the things about this one is that it is so. It's worldwide. I mean, I I really wish they had shown us the statistics, or they'd said something. There at the end, Quatermass hands Joe a thing. He says, "These are the latest." statistics and i assume they're talking about how many people are dead how many people have been destroyed by this thing and you know i i am curious as to you know are we talking 25 percent of the world population 60 percent of the world population is it all gone i don't know the 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 scale of the death and the fact that the sky is is green and i have an important question to ask you about that um you know Different diets produce different results, but in the UK, is vomit green? On the on the phone, the emoji produces green vomit. That's your face, though. You turn green. It's true. That's the phrase. But I've always, you know, I mean, American vomit tends to be a sort of a tan color. Um, I mean, I know they call it a technicolor yawn, but I think that's just, you know, little chunks of the food. And if it's a lot of green food, maybe, but I would not look at that sky. I would never, ever, ever look at that sky and go, looks like vomit. And I don't know if that's a failure of the special effects or 
<laughs> or 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 what. But any way you go about it, the fact that people are appalled at the color of the sky is nowhere near as much as I would be appalled by the fact that I am breathing the dead people. <laughs> right? I mean, that's well, the it, truly we horrific what, part about it. At what height is is the the vomit layer? God, I'm oh, glad no, we've gotten to the important stuff at last. We have. We've gotten to the vomit layer. Yeah, we've gotten to the, the good stuff there. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it is, it, you know, it's it's just one of those questions that was raised in my mind. Um you know, because um, the ash is coming from the ground. I don't know, but 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 I do think what is tangentially to that then, or or perhaps more telling, I think it's fascinating that uh, Neil has picked up on the the uh, musk harvest harvest and how incredibly wasteful we are about products. You know, as as he as Quatermass says at one point, products to to enhance the what's his phrase? Enhance the luxury or of of aliens we can't comprehend. But he's just talking about things like the musk. You know, you kill a whole animal to get just a little bit of a stinky to put on yeah. people so yeah. they can smell. It, it it's incredibly wasteful, and that's exactly what these aliens are doing. Or that's what they're implying they're doing. They never actually came out and said, we finally found the thing that they're taking. There was a moment when I thought they had done that. But but afterwards, i thinking maybe it's more likely it's the thing that they were trying to isolate to lure the aliens. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure because they never... Well, right there when the guy died, when the scientists keeled over dead, when they made the breakthrough, it's... Uh, I wrote it down, but I don't I don't have it in front of me right at the moment. But, I said um, I, I certainly felt that it wasn't entirely clear what evidence they had at all to back up the kind of massive intuitive leaps that Quatermass kept making about the nature of these aliens and what they were after. I mean, clearly we are we are supposed to take what Quatermass says as being accurate. Well, everyone that doesn't listen to what Quatermass says ends up dead. Exactly. Most, practically everyone is dead in this show. But oh, Benzel, Benzaldehyde, Benzaldehyde. That was the thing that they said. We've got it. We've got it. Or you know, one guy dies over. And he's like, oh, this is terrible setback. No, no, we got it. I'm like, all right, cold, cold lady. But okay. <laughs> I, I, at first, I thought that was the thing that the aliens were after, and so that's what they were trying to get at. But yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a little unclear that Quatermass is, is confirmed in his belief that this is a harvest. On the other hand, you're also trying to uh, you're trying to imply some form of logic to the aliens' behavior. So, <clears throat> why would they draw a bunch of people together to just wipe them out? I guess it could just be that they well, like wiping good. out planets. It's yeah. I mean, it is a good question. But uh, but but I guess more importantly, how did how did Quatermass figure out, because I found this bit quite un, unsatisfactory, how did he figure out that exploding a nuclear bomb at the point that they were doing the harvesting would actually have such a dramatic effect on them? I think I would have liked this film better if it had ended with the explosion. You mean, so we didn't even know whether it worked? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I wondered whether we would... We would end up with that because the ending 
that we got felt a little bit tacked on. Yeah. Yeah, it it is a little, you know, everything's gone back and it's all nice now. And, and you know, does that mean that young folk are listening to their elders now again? And... <laughs> Well, of course, because not, they, not, they, you know, they've, you know, they've is, forgotten is the about the Tidapi show influence. no longer, no longer in, uh, watched on TV. Is that gone? I, you know, it just, it. it uh... I mean, I get, I guess, one of the th- things that um, may have, may have, subconsciously influenced how I took the ending was that afterwards I realised Torch with Children of Earth must have been hugely influenced by this given the similarity of the themes um with the aliens you know using something that the the young people can provide or whatever but it has a more logical payoff in that um whereas just big explosion in this it seemed like a bit of a a bit of a stab in the dark to be honest i agree uh, I agree with you, and and I hadn't put that, I hadn't put the association with Children of Earth, but yeah, and I will tell you that in that biography on Neil, one of the people they interview about this show is Russell T Davies, who watched it as a kid, and no surprise, and yeah, no surprise, and I, I, I want to say he was disappointed with it, at least when he watched it. I think he may also be one of those people that said it has changed as I've gotten older, but. <laughs> But it, I mean, it may it may also be that that was the reason he wanted to write something inspired by it because he wanted Could be. to do something yeah. that capitalised on the bits about it that 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 he would allow him to feel were not compromised by those elements that didn't work so well. Yeah, so it, it's I can definitely see this. You can now say this this too is clearly an influential work. Absolutely, yeah. Now, you know, as, as we alluded to earlier, this is considered the lesser light for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the background of how this was transmitted, but it was originally supposed to go out. It was They, they spent a lot of money on it, right? I mean, it shows. It's on the screen. They spent oh, yeah. a lot of money on it. And they... Partly, partly because they were able to make a film at the same time. So they were doubling up on the money and it's... I guess right. Verity, Verity Lambert is the incoming chief executive of Houston Films doing something very clever in order to make a, a mark with something quite dramatic and different. But it was it was scheduled to go, I believe, in August or September of 1979. And they apparently advertised the heck out of it, according to the according to the, there was you know, signs all over the tube, huge signs and billboards. And, and they really, really were pushing this. I mean, absolutely pushing it. And then ITV went on strike just as it was due to air and was off the air for several weeks. And so it was one of the first shows on the air after they came back in October. And... I mean, within hours of them coming online, they ran the first episode of this. So, you know, Nigel Neal had left the country to go on vacation. And uh, apparently a lot of people did because nobody watched it much. Um, It wasn't, (laughs) you know, there was no, you know, there was no, all the the advanced hype had, had worn off and the advertising was wasted. And 
and then it went out. You know, they led with it because it was big, and they thought we might get people back on the network, but it it, it had some flaws with that plan, and it just kind of limped along after that. So it it uh, it's it's weird how you can look at these things and wonder how well it would have done if it had gone out with all the hype. Would more yeah, people watch it? Would more, I mean, it may not have done any better. You never can tell. Uh, you know, many of the critics were not particularly nice to it. Um, but like I say a lot of people, like Russell T. Davis, said they were disappointed with it. But you know, I think I think they they also quoted there as Mark Gaddis. He loved it. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure so, I saw a Verity Lambert quote saying, um, "Oh, she thought this it was, was really good." Oh, she thought it was really good, but she was in in recognition of the disappointing performance. She said it was always difficult to bring something back, which I thought. I presume she. I presume. Well, she. Yeah, she would have had to say, said that before Doctor Who came back in two thousand five. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So, um, yeah, it, it's it 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 obviously had some play on it, and you know, here we are watching this, and I didn't know that I. I I avoided reading anything about the production of this before watching it. You know, I wanted to I wanted to sit down and watch this. I could not remember much about the book. I remember Quatermass old and I remember old people sex and I remember the planet people hippies uh and and something about his granddaughter at the end but i did not really remember much about the book i i wasn't crazed crazy about it frankly i mean it was okay but i didn't i didn't think wow this guy so you know i i apart from the fact that it's too long i think it's too long i i well, it's now the quatermass the others, isn't it yeah i i think the quatermass conclusion the movie version which a little little on the nose there with a the name um will um might be better i don't know i'll I'll watch it and try to after i've got notes but it, it was a bit rough to get through this one for the podcast even though it is just one story i mean it was it was you know not oh, just no, four no. episodes four hours and it it felt at times like it was dragging on a bit here and there but i did enjoy it I, it is still a very good piece of science fiction television. It just, it is, there are some flaws there along the way. I line. wouldn't say it, it hasn't got flaws. I mean, it, like I say, there were, the, there were those moments when things taken absolutely seriously. I mean, the best example now I think of it was the, the, the levitation explosion, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure browned a few trousers at the time, but it just, it was funny. It was like, a Monty Python skit. <laughs> and I, I I felt that it was those moments that I was taken out of it that were the real flaws. Because actually, for the most part, I would say I felt compelled to continue watching it without, you know, without glancing at my watch or anything like that. It wasn't, it didn't feel like a long four hours if it weren't for the fact that I was I knew I was on a schedule to get it watched in time for us to record. Uh, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have really have noticed the the length of time that was passing. You mentioned Isabella. That brings a thought to mind. One thing I thought was unsuccessful, and it's a special effects thing, and it's also a dialogue thing. The the stuff on Isabel when they dragged her away. 
I don't think the fact that at no point does Quatermass or or anyone look at that and go, you know, this is this isn't just ash and junk that stuck to her. This is actually her body has been partially transformed by the beam. Yeah, and it's got smallpox or something. Yeah, or or you know, this is part of the conversion process or something that they could have studied that that you know, not just looking at Isabel, but looking at the those weird those weird chunks on her that if you know if it was just ash they should have just washed it off but it wasn't it was it was part of the process they had somebody in mid process and uh that doesn't that is not as clear as it should be and because of what they're doing i mean at no point does quatermass say i've got to get you know we need to get this and see what this is Maybe we can figure out what's happening or anything to get her to a hospital, get her to a lab. They just say, we, we got a survivor. We got to get her to a lab. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. I suppose. But yeah. it's not clear that that's – and I think that's just but partially the, the effects. Well, I'm failing. not sure it is. I think it's partly, it partly the nature of the, the, the narrative. I mean, that is where the film diverges. It, it getting, getting her to the hospital happens much quicker in the film because – Quatermass. No, oh, you did watch did. the. You did watch the. The. No, no, I haven't. I haven't watched it yet. But I. But that. But that's the area where they. Where they filmed different scenes to to stitch it together. So they they filmed it with Quatermass oh, okay. staying in the vehicle, and then they filmed it with Quatermass in the hospital with Anne, because he never he never leaves the vehicle at that point you know, and goes off with all that. The, the kind of the first books, act yeah. first act of episode three is basically cut in its entirety. So. I I I think the the narrative itself is is all about getting Isabel to a lab with the with the intention to do some kind of analysis when they get her there. But what's different about this Quatermass and the fifties um, is that there's a lot less of the kind of static talky bits where they might actually be discussing the analysis of all this and. The reason for that is because there is a huge amount more explosions, firing of guns, high-speed chases, driving. It's an action thing. And actually, this is one of the things about John Mill's performance, which is quite interesting. He is is required to sort of get thrown all over the place and be blown up and covered in ash and dust. And he is, whilst he is as you say, playing old, he is also at the same time something of an action hero in this film, which is a teeny bit of a departure. I, I guess a bit. I mean, he is, he's pretty good at being beaten up. In, in other words, yeah. when he's gimping around uh, after he's been uh, thrown from the vehicle and everything, he looks like a frail old man again. He, he's, he's really good at that sort of... But given the punishment he takes in those... Yeah. That I think that's pretty good for a man of his age. Yeah, I mean he's no Daniel Craig there, but he's he's held up. To- <laughs> I, I don't. I mean I don't know that I have anything else on on this. Uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, oh yeah, I I I agree with you. I I I mean like I say, I I perhaps liked it even more because I didn't feel like it dragged or anything. The only thing I would say is I was blown away by Quatermass in the Pit. I just thought mm-hmm. it was extraordinary. Um, for something that was that was made in the 1950s, that broadcast essentially as live, and it doesn't feel to me when I'm watching that for whatever reason that I'm watching something dated, something to do with the immediacy or the the kind of, the the kind of 
electrifying effect of watching something live and coupled perhaps with the fact that we don't do that anymore so you're not you're not kind of comparing it to modern television whereas i think quatermass is much more in the in the kind of although obviously things have changed a lot since since the 70s it's much more in the recognizable mold of how television is still made and a lot of it does look very dated and those flaws stick out and perhaps mm. the the one final thing that i would say about why it maybe doesn't quite live up to the the 50s serials is is perhaps i don't know but credit maybe to rudolph cartier who i just think did an extraordinary job with them yeah i would say the directing on this was journeyman much more so yeah yeah uh it was it was competent but it was not inspired it, it doesn't leap off the screen and considering the amount of explosions it doesn't it doesn't leap off the screen all right well that's it i uh, i mean i'm not saying this is the end of our quatermass journey because we will definitely find a way to take a look at the original quatermass experiment um so that we can say that we've looked at all all the quatermass as much as we can uh, but uh, but this does end our journey for this film certainly ends the journey of poor Bernard Quatermass <sighs> once and for all. You'll never bring him back. Not possible. <laughs> Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure as always. Uh, listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at Patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, we'll be starting a new series, the BBC techno sci-fi thriller Bugs, with episode one, Out of the Hive. Come join the conversation.